Hello, and Happy New Year! Welcome to episode 30 of Screaming Through the Ages, a horror movie history podcast. In this episode, I am back solo to finish out the last of the franchise reviews that I'll be doing. I've done the last couple of these with Nathan Bartlebaugh, and Nathan and I will be back doing more of these probably later in the year, but we're taking a break for now. These are fun to do, but you just can't do them all the time. So on this episode, I'm digging deep into the Final Destination franchise. And as was the case with the previous two, there will be probably minor spoilers at least for the Final Destination movies. So if you do want to see them and you know haven't yet watched all the movies, I'd recommend doing that first and then coming back and listening to this episode. So with this one, since I'm by myself more than the other two, I'm going to get into some of the background and history of these movies. And I think it's going to be a good time getting into the Final Destination franchise, which is one that I grew up with. Been over it time and time again. I was not a child of the 80s. I was a child of the 90s mostly. And Final Destination was there as I was just getting into some horror movies, and it was a big deal at the time. I'm going to be going one by one through these movies, giving my thoughts and some background and my, you know, recommendation review. And then at the end of the episode, I'm getting back to what turns out is a very serendipitous choice. I was saving this one for this episode. Um, After I'd watched it, I was like, yeah, I'm just going to wait to bring this segment back. But the Watchlist Roulette, which... I'll get into that a little bit. It's gone through a little bit of a revamping, and I will talk about that at the end of the episode. Quick post-production note here. There is still time to get in your top 10 list for the Best of 2022 episode, which will be launching two weeks after this episode comes out. And, you know, you could send your top 10, top 5, top 15, whatever you got, over to me in an email, on Twitter, on Facebook, whatever you got. And you will be entered to win a 4K Blu-ray of The Lost Boys or the Blu-ray of The Black Phone. Now, this is secondary to me. I'm just looking for participation in the Best of 2022 episode, and I would love to include your top 10 on that episode. But yeah, just get that over to me however you can, and you probably still have about a week or so after I record this one to get that in. I'm just really excited to see what other people put in their best of list. All right, let's get back to the show. So the concept for Final Destination began life as an X-Files episode written by Jeffrey Reddick. He based it on a story about a woman who got a call from her mom while she was on vacation warning her not to get on a flight that she was going on. She switched flights, and her original flight crashed, taking the lives of 16 high school students and 5 teachers, among others. So there's a pretty clear inspiration there, and I think... I mean, I didn't know about this story ahead of time, I'm sure maybe some people at the time did, but this seems like pretty straightforward inspiration. New Line Cinema convinced him to turn the script into a feature-length film instead of an X-Files episode, and hired him to write the screenplay. James Wong and Glenn Morgan were brought in later and made alterations to the script. Wong 
who would end up directing this movie, stated that he wanted this film to do for air travel what Jaws did for swimming. He didn't want to make it into a slasher movie and instead wanted death to be the antagonist itself. It was less about if a character would survive and more about enjoying the ride of how they would die. And I think that's very apparent as you go down through and watch these movies. Filming was done in several different locations, including Long Island, Vancouver, San Francisco, and Toronto, with I think the majority of it being done in Vancouver, and that would be a recurring theme in the series as well. The filming schedule was difficult because of the projects that the cast had going on at the time. They were constantly rescheduling in order to get everyone to film at the same time. Some even had to delay other projects in order to get this one finished. So there were a lot of moving pieces here. I think they had a lot of younger actors who, you know, were hot at the time and had roles all over the place. So Devin Sawa definitely being one of those. Um, I know Allie Larder, I don't know if she would come into her own yet, but I know she would be in the Resident Evil movies at least later. Yeah, a lot of stuff going on there. John Willett, who was the set designer, designed two sets for every scene. One would be used before the plane crash, and one after in order to portray subtle changes. And I think this is pretty cool, and a lot of thought put into this, something I would never thought of, and I would have never, you know, dug into or thought to dig into. I wouldn't have even thought about this if I hadn't heard of this. But apparently, you know, the scenes before the crash had these rich colors, and, you know, it seemed like normal life. And then after the plane crash in the movie, the colors were faded and perspective was forced either vertically or horizontally instead of like a square like you'd normally see to give you the slight sense that something's off. Now, I didn't catch that again this time, but something pretty cool and probably something really subtle. A giant airplane model was created for the plane crash scene. It took two months to make, weighed 45,000 pounds, and could shift 45 degrees from side to side, and I think 60 degrees front and back. So they made this giant plane model just for that crash. And I think we'll absolutely see that going forward, where these opening scenes are kind of the bread and butter, and they're kind of filmed almost on their own, and definitely most effort is put into those kind of scenes. This movie was released in theaters on March 17th of 2000 and ended up making 53000 domestically and 112000 worldwide. It would be in theaters for 22 weekends, which is almost unheard of at this point in time. I mean, that was something that was much more popular back then in the 90s and the early 2000s when there were just less movies coming out. And, you know, movies were allowed to breathe. We didn't have to rush out to a movie to see it, you know, week one or two, or else it's going to be gone, which happened to me with something like Bones and All and Tar, which pretty much disappeared from movie theaters. Yet the new disappointing Black Panther film will probably be running until February. So, but this was a big hit. If I'm looking here at my budget table, this one was made for $23 million and made $53 million domestically. So it made $30 million over of its budget just in North America. It made $112 million worldwide. 
these movies surprisingly do really well at the international box office. I don't know if it's because of the spectacle aspect and you're not as worried about the story or characters or anything like that, but they do pretty well outside of North America. Now, to go along with that budget table, I also have a table of critical response to this. And this is cool to kind of chart this stuff that... So I've always come in with the expectation, and I'll talk about this in just a little bit. The first Final Destination is a, you know, classic, quote-unquote classic, in that it's the best of the series and all this stuff. Well, rewatching this time, I think my opinion's changed, but it also seems like critical response as well. I mean, Rotten Tomatoes, you're looking at only a 35% for that first movie, which is the second lowest in the series. And then you've got a 36 Metacritic, which is, uh, you know, it's this also the second lowest in the series. And I think Final Destination fans probably know which one is the worst in the series. And then Cinema Score, which is tracked out of, you know, f- people coming out of the theater, got a B minus. So that's not... It's not terrible, but it is still, again, the second lowest cinema score of the series, and it doesn't inspire a lot of confidence. So even though this was kind of a landmark at the time, where in a time where we didn't really get a lot of landmark films, and I, I caution saying landmark because like the other two franchises that we cover, um, or have covered with Critters and Silent Night, Deadly Night, this is another series where you can argue there's one really good movie or there's a couple that you can like, but none of them are really outstanding or it's not like you have a Halloween one to go along with some of these other ones. These are lesser talked about franchises. And I think so far, though, what we found is most of the time, even with these lesser talked about franchises, you have a lot of movies that kind of circle around the same score. They're not just all terrible. Like I think maybe you would think going in, but We'll get back to that later. I'm going to actually talk about the movie. Okay, so like I was saying, this released March 17th of 2000. Ran for about half the year in theaters, which is great. The synopsis reads, After a teenager has a terrifying vision of him and his friends dying in a plane crash, he prevents the accident only to have death hunt them down one by one. And that's essentially the running premise of the entire franchise, Now, the other two series that we had talked about previously, they don't have rhyme and reason to them sometimes. They're kind of all over the place and maybe share one common theme or element, or maybe with Silent Night, Deadly Night, they don't even do that. But with Final Destination, they're all pretty much the same thing. A big accident happens, some people escape the accident because of a vision, and they're hunted down one by one by death. That is what you're going to get in all of these. It does get very tedious and samey as you go through it. That's just the nature of these movies. One thing with these, um, I mean, so to set it up a little more, I guess you've got Devin Sawa, who these high school kids are getting on a plane, just like the plane crash that inspired this. And they're going to France with some teachers and stuff over there. He has a weird vision which doesn't seem like a vision at the time it's played out in real time when you're first watching this movie so he has that vision and basically just starts freaking out and i i can't imagine if this movie was made today what would have happened to these kids if with like tsa and 
air marshals and things like that. It would have been pretty brutal. But as it is, you know, everyone who's standing up in the aisle and, you know, one kid was late. So it wasn't even I think it's Sean William Scott's character was late. So it's not even like he was causing a ruckus or anything. But, you know, like happens pretty much in all of these, some kind of fight breaks out or some kind of argument breaks out that causes a disturbance in people to be removed from a situation. Well, that happens here, and we get several different kids escorted off of this plane. I think you've got Devin Sawa, who is Alex Browning. Um, his friend gets escorted off. Allie Larder, who is Clear Rivers, which Clear is a very interesting name. I always want to call her Clara, but I know it's Clear. And she just kind of gets off of her own volition. She seems like she's kind of doing her own thing anyway, and she sees this and is like, yeah, I got to get off this plane. One of the teachers named Valerie Luton, which is a great nod, uh, gets escorted off the plane. And yes, they do call her Val in this movie. And you've got a guy who starts a fight with Alex and his girlfriend. And then Sean William Scott. And I think that's all of the people that get escorted off of this plane. But they sit there and, you know, it plays out in real time. And then he freaks out after his vision. And then you see the plane actually explode in the air. And it plays out just like it would except they're not on it anymore. As you'd expect, the authorities have some questions about all of this. And, you know, once they are released, and it's kind of unexplained, but again, this is something we're going to see in later entries, they are released, sent out into the world, and then that's when these uh, Rube Goldberg-style killings start happening left and right. So that's basically what you have as a setup um, are these characters are trying to, you know, solve or figure out a way to get past this and not die. And unfortunately, you get the same kind of setup in every sequel that comes after this. That the big accident happens, they have kind of a vision, and they spend half or two-thirds of the movie trying to figure out what happened to them. And yeah, it gets tired, and I'm going to get this out of the way as far as links between all of these movies, is it's got that late 90s, aughts, maybe even early 2010s stink all over it. And what do I mean by that? Well, first of all, you have Trent Reznor doing a Final Destination song. It's terrible, and nothing against Trent Reznor, I mean... I am a Nine Inch Nails fan, but the song is just an awful movie tie-in, and it was that time of the awful movie tie-in songs. But you've just got these, you know, you can tell what era this movie came from. Just like if you watch an 80s movie, you can tell what era that came from. Problem is, is usually with those 80s movies, the aesthetic is more charming a lot of the times than it is here with this odd stuff, and maybe it's because I grew up in this era, and it's just always lingered with me, but I've always had a problem with that Platinum Dune-style stuff, or the, you know, it's, I think Pastor Matt refers to this stuff as, like, the, you know, the Dawson's Creek-type kids, the CW or WB channel-type teenage kids that appear on this stuff, and it, it is, it's just all a little too glossy, it's, and I don't want to, I want to stop that right there, because this movie, well, these movies as a whole, do get pretty brutal, 
and they are R-rated movies. They're not like a lot of the PG-13 fare we got around this time. Which, you know, thinking about that, I don't know how true that is either, because I think we did get a lot of R-rated stuff, but it maybe felt like PG-13 because it was just a bunch of teenagers the whole time, just angsty teenagers that, uh, yeah, it, anyway, I'm not going to get into that. That's something that's always hung heavy over me with this era of movies, and it's probably because I was going to school, like high school and stuff, with kids that seemed similar to the people in these movies, and it's just got, it's just got that feel to it. I don't know how to describe it, but I feel like everyone knows what I'm talking about if you've seen a movie from this time period, and it does have that. Now, I'm going to be doing some segments at the end of this rundown of the franchise where I'm going to rank some things, and one of those things are going to be the group of survivors. So, talking about them and this one, I think the cast is pretty good, and I've talked about that. You know, Devin Salwa, Sean William Scott, Ali Larder. The problem is, is the characters aren't that intriguing. There's not that much to them. I do like Ali Larder's Clear Rivers character. And, you know, I like some of the back and forth we get between Alex Browning and I think the character of Carter in this one. He's clearly, you know, Carter's clearly this bully, machismo, D-bag, and him and Browning get into it all the time. But... You know, especially at the end of the movie, I like where that goes. The, And I I guess I'm thinking about it. I do like Val Luton in this a little bit. Valerie Luton's character. Or Valerie Luton is the character. I do like her, and I think I like her death scene the most of any of the other characters in this. And I said there would be some minor spoilers. I'm going to try not to get too much into it, but I feel like most people have seen this one at least. Yeah, it's just... Yeah, it's, I don't know, there's nothing special to them is the problem. And this is where I thought, I've always thought Final Destination was the best in this franchise. I thought it was the clear standout, and I don't think that's the case now going back through. Now, it's not terrible, I don't think it is, but that's just how I'm feeling. So, you know, while the cast is decent and solid, I don't know if the characters and writing are really there. If we're talking about the death scenes, I mean... I think this is the least elaborate, the movie with the least elaborate death scenes, and you can probably chalk that up to they're just getting started with this stuff. I mean, I think the first couple are, at least one of the first couple is surprising, but I don't think there's a whole lot of that craziness here yet. It's crazy, but trust me, it gets a lot worse. I'm trying to think of any of them are really that good. And I do think the one that stands out is the one of the teacher, Val Luton. But I feel like here with this movie, the tone of this movie is just very serious. And even though some things like seem very campy to me, it seems like they're still going for a very serious tone. And I think that would definitely change going forward in the series. But this is all business, is how they're treating this one. And that's okay. I mean, that's that's fine to go in, it, go in like that. And I think, I just think when you go back and visit this one, it doesn't hold up as much as some of the other entries in the series. Now, the plane crash is unsettling for sure. And I think that's a really good part of it. But 
you know, the rest of the stuff, it's just mostly pedestrian. But, I mean, you get some good stuff here. And you do have Tony Todd in this one as well. I forgot when I was talking to the cast. And he would be in several of these movies going forward. But the original Final Destination, I guess when I go back and think about it and rewatch it, it's not as good as I thought it was. Or maybe it is as good as I thought it was. Because I don't have any of these movies particularly rated high. But I think on this one... I mean, I'm thinking the ending of this one is pretty cool. I really like the way it ends. Um, I like that whole setup. I like both of the ending type setups. There's two. There's a kind of a false ending. Well, not really a false ending. It's the big climactic one. And then there's kind of an epilogue, which is also really good. So I like how that ties it all together. I really like the opening of this movie. I like a couple of the characters. I like the thing with the, you know, the death with the teacher other than that, it's a pretty standard movie, and that's okay. It's fun, it's entertaining, but it's not as fun and entertaining as some of the other ones we would see in the franchise, and the characters are just pretty bland for the most part, honestly. I think I would come in around... I'm still going to give it a 7. I still really do enjoy this movie as the one that kicked it all off, and it's got a lot of nostalgia for me. But I think it just doesn't hold up to the standard of being the best in the franchise. And I think retrospectively, when you're looking at it and rewatching it, yeah, it's not the best in the franchise, but it is still a fun, solid movie. So let's go ahead and jump into Final Destination 2. So after the success of the first film, New Line asked Reddick about making a sequel. Reddick was all for it as he wanted to expand on the mythology of the first and not tell the same story over again, which is a great starting point. Did they end up telling the same story again? I don't know. We'll see. The budget was bumped up from $23 million to $26 million, so they got a few million more, not really a whole lot. Wong and Morgan were tied up on other projects and weren't expected to return, which, I don't know how to feel about that. Like, yeah, they did a decent job with the first one. But they came back, and I don't know if their return to the series was that great either. Second unit director David R. Ellis was brought on to direct. And Eric Bress and J. Mackay Gruber, very cool name, were brought in to co-write the script. Bress claimed that they actually had to rein in the final script. I don't know if they thought it went too far, or the studio went too far, but somebody thought it went too far. They were trying to go out with this mindset of, we need to make death, we need for people to fear death again. They wanted death to just be this powerful antagonist who was unstoppable and just kind of destroyed these people. And I think they did in the final product, but it seems like they even went further initially. Sawa's character was killed off-screen in between films, which always was weird to me when I was watching these when they were coming out. You know, you've got about three years in between these films' releases, and Sawa's just not back, and there's no explanation. He doesn't die in the first movie, um, but you do have Ali Larder's Clear Rivers coming back. So very weird. Many thought this was due to a contract dispute, which would be the 
obvious thing people jump to. However, New Line is on record as saying the issue was resolved with the contract, and he wasn't brought back purely for narrative reasons, which makes it even weirder, because if you want to create this continuous through line for these movies, and I think you do when you're using Clear Rivers and you're talking about the accident, and you, I think they even talk about Alex in this one, you just kill him off screen. You could at least, like, you know, pull a Friday the 13th Part 2 or something like that where you show them dying early on in the film or how that happens. So I would have liked some closure there. So you're not really starting this movie off on the right foot with that. But I can forgive it. They return to Vancouver Lake to film a majority of this film. So once again, you're going to see that over and over where they're filming is in Vancouver. To avoid confusion between her character and Allie Larder's character, A.J. Cook had to dye her hair brown. And she said that she actually liked this. She liked to change up her look and liked to change up her acting style and everything so she wouldn't get typecast as a certain character. So she was a big fan of changing her hair brown for this role. It said both did their own stunt work for the water scenes, which, you know, they're seen with water on a frozen lake in this movie. These water scenes were filmed partially on location at a lake in 37 degree temperatures, so pretty cold to be doing a stunt in a water. And then the other part were done in a studio pool that was 93 degrees. So they kind of got both sides of that. They got to be very cold out in the open water, and they got to be very hot. I mean, 93 degrees is very hot for a pool, too. That's like hot tub levels. So pretty cool little factoid there. Digital Dimension was the company brought in to perform visual CGI effects. They were only brought in after the crew realized that real logs only bounce about an inch off the road. And when we're saying logs here, you know, when they're dropped from a logging truck in real life, they're not going to jump up and spear through a window most of the time. And that's what was happening. And this is for that opening scene, um, you know, the opening disaster scene, which are always the big spectacle set pieces in these movies. They were, and them being the filmmakers, uh, were impressed by how realistic the CGI logs looked when Digital Dimension, you know, put together their, their pitch for this movie. Despite the CG logs, all of the cars that were used in that sequence were real, and life cast of the actors were used. Digital Dimension had offered to do the digital car stuff, and I think they actually did, and make the entire scene CGI, but the filmmakers still wanted, you know, the real cars and then life cast of the actors in those shots. The film was released on January 31st of 2003 and ran for 16 weekends, so not quite as long as the original, but hey, at least all of these got theatrical releases. The box office dropped off to 47,000 domestically and 90,000 worldwide. So you're talking about around a $7 million drop-off in North America and around $16 million drop-off outside of North America, so internationally, for a worldwide total that dropped about $22 million. Not a great day, but still a pretty good return with a $26 million budget. Now let's go into critical response a little bit. I do have this table here, so I might as well go through it. 
for Final Destination 2, it holds a 48% on Rotten Tomatoes. And by the way, these aren't like some of the movies we see now where there's like 10 or 15 reviews and it's got an 88. They're actually... The first one is the only one with less than 100 Rotten Tomato reviews, and that's at 96. So, you know, 111 people reviewed this, and it's got a 48%. That's not bad for an early aughts horror movie, honestly. Now, the Metacritic isn't as sparkling, but this is the second highest reviewed entry in the franchise based off Rotten Tomatoes. And it's got that B-plus cinema score, which we would see with a couple others. That's the highest the series goes in cinema score. So let's go ahead and set up Final Destination 2. Okay, so this one dropped in 2003. And interesting little tagline here. Death is like a boomerang. It keeps coming back. And uh, that kind of gives you a different vibe to this one. It's definitely more campy, but let's set this up. The uh, Oh, the poster art is so bad. It's just like faces, teen faces kind of distorted. Ah, that's terrible. When Kimberly has a violent premonition of a highway pileup, she blocks the freeway, keeping a few others meant to die safe, or are they? The survivors mysteriously start dying, and it's up to Kimberly to stop it before she's next. So right off the bat, we've got the accident that is this crash, and I kind of, these accidents kind of run together. There for a while, and I had rewatched these I don't know, a few years back, because I bought the, and I don't know if I said that, but I I give this one a 7, but I do own this franchise on DVD. I don't know if you need to upgrade that to Blu-ray or anything, but I do have like a 5-pack. So I had, whenever I bought that a few years ago, I went back and rewatched all these. Up until that point, these accidents kind of ran together. I knew the plane crash was the first one, but then I think I was like, you know, thinking this one was part three for some reason, and the roller coaster was part four. I don't know why I got it all mixed up, and I never remembered what was in five. But that is the scene in this one. It is a highway pileup with a log truck kind of shooting logs behind people. A very deadly crash. This The opening scene is very gruesome, and even more, I think the first film had an opening scene that was filled with dread and it was kind of terrifying and that's the kind of fear that you got from it this one had that as well but it was also really gruesome and brutal and speaking of i think the deaths are much more gruesome and brutal and you see that with the first survivor getting killed that one's pretty rough and it kind of lets you know that they're not playing around they do get much more elaborate in this one And they also get campier at the same time. It kind of embraces what it is finally in part two. So I think it was cool to get, overall I think David Ellis directing this one was the right choice. And I like that he, I like the direction that he took with this. What direction is that? Well, I think mainly the survivors are much more distinguishable from each other. And they... You know, they do sometimes feel like caricatures still, but I still like a lot of the characters in this movie, and I think they're really well done. I think they react the way you would expect characters to react. I think it's just much more real and tangible with these characters, 
And that is a huge part of why I like part two so much. There's an interesting way of connecting the first movie to this one because they take the survivor of the previous movie, and that is Clear Rivers, Allie Larder's character. Um, she returns, and there is that link. It's nothing groundbreaking. It's nothing new or fresh. But it is kind of cool to have that link from the first one, and it's a really good plot device to figure out, you know, get them from one point in the story to how they kind of band together and try to fight this stuff. Let's go ahead and talk about this cast of survivors that I like so much. And you've got AJ Cook, who does an, a pretty good job as Kimberly. I don't think she's the best character, but she's pretty good. Allie Larder does her best, you know, prepper type, <laughs> doomsday prepper type character here. She is definitely, you know, she's locked herself in a padded room in this movie in a mental institution. She doesn't let anyone come in with any kind of objects she's content to just stay in this room for the rest of her life and live out her days like that. So that's the kind of character she is, and she's warning all these people, you know, once Kimberly comes in and gets her out of there. And they kind of have this AA meeting for these survivors. They, you know, we get them grouped together, and they're having conversations about this, and maybe they don't believe it. But, yeah, that's basically what happens after a couple of deaths transpire. You've got... Uh, Michael Landis, who is the police officer in this and kind of the love interest of A.J. Cook's character. Now, I'm a big fan of T.C. Carson in this, Terrence T.C. Carson. He plays Eugene Dix, who's a school teacher. I think he does great in this. Now, if T.C. Carson sounds familiar, he was the voice of Kratos in the God of War video games up until the latest and well not the latest entry at this point but the 2018 kind of rehash of that one yes he was the voice of Kratos so that's where I mainly know him from you've got a couple other characters you know you've got Rory who is that comic relief loser type character but uh, Rory's not too bad you've got Kat who I really like I think she is one of the best parts of this movie. And, you know, then you've got a mom and a son, and the way, you know, that they go out is pretty bad. But it's just the way the cast gels and they kind of fit together. And more so than the first, you have this cast coming together to try to escape death. And I don't think you see a ton of that even later on in the franchise. I think this is the one where they're the most cohesive group and they're trying to actively all work together to figure out a way out of this. You know, they're not, you know, they might blow it off at first, but something happens. And I think we're at like the third or fourth death by the time they're all together here and something happens that kind of pushes them towards, okay, well, maybe we do need to stay together in this and try to figure it out. As far as the death scenes, there are some really brutal ones, like I mentioned. There's one later on uh, involving some, you know, barbed wire that's pretty bad. I think the death at the very end of this, first of all, the epilogue in this movie, I think they were just trying to put one on because the first one had one. It's awful. It makes no sense. It makes no sense why these characters that are together would be together. And I think it's just there to add some more, you know, umph to the end of the movie that epilogue is absolutely terrible. 
but uh, the in the movie itself, you know, you realize once again, no one is safe. Everyone could die. And a lot of times they do die in pretty rough ways. I mean, the first three deaths in this are very upsetting. As we get on a little longer, I don't know if they have the... I mean, the creativity is still there, and they still pack a punch. The thing is, a lot of these deaths are just brutal. And I do like the movie for that. So, yeah. Yeah, some of them are just kind of like one-off deaths again, but you can't sit there and do an elaborate death for everyone. At the end of all this, I think I came out the most positive on this one of any of these films. And I would come in at probably like a 7.5 on Final Destination 2. It has the characters that kind of elevates it up to the next level. I think it's very close of being right there if there's some, still some weird campy stuff that I don't like. I like that I leaned into it in some cases, but other cases not so much. I think there's a case to be made that this is the best cast of characters, that they're the best deaths, and this is the best opening scene. I will talk about all that a little later. But, yeah, I think it's a solid entry. Again, I would say buy, if you can find it pretty cheap, I would buy the collection of these movies because... I have watched that collection twice now, and these movies aren't really available to stream a lot of places. New Line is really bad with a lot of their stuff, despite being tied in with Warner Brothers. It's just hard to find a lot of the New Line stuff streaming. Okay, so 2 was still successful, and it came out three years after the original. Well, 3 began development as 2 was releasing and was meant to be the final installment. They wanted this to be kind of a trilogy with Final Destination 1, 2, and 3. Jeffrey Reddick didn't return, so this was the first time without Reddick. He's not there for this installment, but James Wong was back to direct from Part 1. Wong said this was always envisioned as more of a standalone movie, so they could come up with a new plot and new characters and not have to have the ties to the ones that came before it. Originally, the movie was going to be called Cheating Death, Final Destination 3, but the title was changed during production, and I'm really glad that they did because that's that's just awful. It was also supposed to be filmed in 3D, but that was abandoned due to budget issues. New Line executive Richard Bryant was inspired by the Big Thunder Mountain Railroad incident of 2003 when he came up with the idea for the opening scene. In this incident, a roller coaster car derailed and crushed a rider. So, once again, we're pulling from real life to try to get these death scenes and kind of turn them up to 11, I would say. The Omen was also an inspiration when it came to having death omens in the pictures that we get into later in the movie. This movie does have Mary Elizabeth Winstead in it, and I really like her as an actor, but we can get into that a little later. But her and Ryan Merriman were chosen as the co-stars of this movie, also starred together in The Ring 2 prior to this one. And... I think I knew Merriman most from, he was in like a Disney original 
movie, a Disney Channel original movie in the early aughts, but you might know him if you see him. Tony Todd didn't return for an acting role in this one, but his voice can be heard as both a statue at the theme park and as a subway conductor. And yes, he doesn't, we don't see Tony Todd in this one, but I could have sworn at the end of this movie, I wrote it down in my notes, you know, oh, that's his voice in the subway. And it absolutely was. So I was glad to be, I was glad to find out that that was him. Yep. For the roller coaster scene at the beginning of this one, they used the corkscrew roller coaster from Vancouver's Playland. So once again, they're back in Vancouver to film this one, and that is the real-life ride they used. Filming wrapped in July of 2005, but test audiences reacted negatively to the ending, causing them to come up with and film the subway scene in November. So once again, there is kind of an epilogue with this one, We can get into what the epilogue does. It takes it kind of in a different direction than the other ones do. But they filmed that scene, and it makes sense because there's really not a lot of connections to the rest of the movie. It makes perfect sense that they filmed that later because of audience reaction. It released on February 10th of 2006, so once again, three years later, and made $54 million domestically and $63 million worldwide for a total of 117 million. So that's pretty good. We actually have a bump up from the last one. And I will mention that the budget was pretty much in line with the other two at 25 million. There's a lot of things that change when we talk between Final Destination 3 and The Final Destination, which is part 4. We can talk a little bit more about that later, but mainly these movies are a Q1 thing with Final Destination, Final Destination 2, Final Destination 3. You've got March, January, February. That's that was used that used to be a safe time for horror movies. A lot of times you would dump out some garbage in that time period. I don't think any of these movies are garbage, but that's what it used to be. The budgets also kind of stay in line. We can get into I mean there's some economic factors obviously that happened between 2006 and 2009. Uh, we'll talk a little bit later about how that changes, but just know that that stuff's going to change. It's not going to be as uniform as it was for these three movies. I just wanted to point out that these three are kind of their own thing. So let me go ahead and set this one up and we can get into part three, uh, directed again by James Wong. And the synopsis reads, a student's premonition of a deadly roller coaster ride saves her life and a lucky few, but not from death itself, which seeks out those who escaped their fate. Not a great write-up, but what we essentially have here is, you know, Mary Elizabeth Winstead, they're getting ready to ride this roller coaster. She seems kind of anxious about it. Well, she has, you know, the series patented visions at the beginning of this and freaks out and is like, okay, I need to get out of here. Basically, a whole car full of people are let off, and even though... Which I don't know how, I don't think this is very realistic. I don't think this would happen in real life. I mean, I've been to theme parks a lot in my life. The thing is, is that I don't know how likely it is if you're saying, hey, let me off this ride. I need to go check on someone that you just pulled off this ride who was causing a massive scene. They're just like, nope, you're riding this ride. Nobody else is getting off. I don't know about that, man. I... That seems like 
well, one, if nothing happens, that still seems like some kind of a lawsuit. You're forcing someone to ride this thing. You know, if they want to get off, you probably should let them get off, whether that's something as dire as this or something even if, like, they're sick or they are afraid of riding it. That seems like a huge liability. So that, to me, seems like just a plot device used. I don't think that would actually happen in real life. I don't know. Maybe it would. Let me know if you have anything else on it, but it kind of started off on the wrong foot. And with three, I kind of remember liking this one a lot more the first time I watched it, but I don't know if I want to rewatch. And I want to get into one thing that kind of helped my enjoyment with this, first and foremost, and that is the choose their fate mode. So, and I had posted about this on social media, you put in this DVD, you fire it up, and you get the option to do, you know, the normal theatrical watch or the choose their fate mode. Obviously, I picked the normal mode first and watched the movie all the way through. Then I went back to this choose their fate mode, which is really cool, especially for something in 2006. You're basically given, um, and the cool thing is, is you can watch this movie and then you can go back in again. If you hit like the skip scene button, instead of taking you to the normal scene by scene thing, it'll just take you to the next decision. So you can really kind of skip your way through this and see how the ripples come out there. Honestly, that might be the best way to watch it just the first time. So what is the choose their fate mode and how does that change things up? Surprisingly, it changes things up a lot in some cases. I can't remember if you do anything at the beginning of the movie, but I it, it often gives you choices like go left, go right, or... What degrees do you set the thermostat to? Or, and that's where it helps to, you know, maybe it's better if you go in blind because I knew some of the things that already had happened in the movie when I went back through. So I knew what to pick to get the different outcome. But there's a scene, and I think the the best scene in this movie, and it's in, it involves tanning beds. So, and you probably know the scene but that's really the first post-accident death scene in this one. And it's really good. It's a really good scene, but you have the... It gives you the option to change the temperature, so a character goes and changes the thermostat. You have the option to change it, and your choice actually changes the outcome. Um, in the movie, and this is a spoiler part of this, both characters die in the tanning beds and like they you know catch on fire their skin blisters the glass comes down on them pretty brutal stuff in this one you can turn the thermostat up higher than they actually did in the first movie or in the first in the way the first scene played out in the real movie the actual theatrical movie and they notice that it gets hot quicker so instead of, you know, a board falling down and trapping both of them in the tanning beds, one character actually gets out. Now, her fate is still unchanged. She still dies. But the second death, you have a chance. And this guy's kind of a perv. He is known for harassing women and videotaping women. You have a chance to honk an extra time and warn him. And if you do it, the guy, he escapes death. And it shows you in a later scene that he's actually detained by the police for secretly filming women. And it kind of, it gives you the option, it's like, do you regret your decision saving this guy? 
and it goes to this separate menu and plays this separate video of police footage of all the things this guy has done and the things that he's done since he survived. And it's like, did you really make the right decision? And then it kind of brings you right back in the movie. So there are some cool parts of this. Some of the decisions matter. Some of them don't. Either way, it's a really cool idea and it's really fun. And it's easily the best part of this movie, I think. The problem is, and I'll circle back here, one is the fatigue really starts to set in if you're doing a marathon of these in a way that I didn't think it did a few years back when I watched these back to back to back. The main problem, well, there's a couple of big problems with three. First of all, the roller coaster sequence is not really violent or brutal at all. I would say it's it might be the most tame of all. I th- it is the most tame of all. Is it the worst of all? I don't know because there's some bad CGI later on too. But it is not the strong opening. It's a great idea for an opening, but it's not as strong as you think it would be. Also, the cast, they're mostly just throwaway characters. And a lot of their deaths seem pedestrian, even with the convoluted nature in which they happen. It's almost like it's toned down. It's almost like they used the budget in other places. I don't know. I don't know, and I'm thinking back, I don't know how much of that has to do with, like, the choose their fate mode. You know, if they had to be like, well, we have to film two different scenes for this, or we have to make sure we can film this in different ways, so we're going to... I don't know if that dealt with the budget, or if that just... You know, some of these, they had to make them seem pretty standard because things would change I'm not sure but either way it feels watered down when compared to two that really was ramping the series up also Mary Elizabeth Winstead she's fine but I don't think it's her typical self and she was very early on in her career she had been in the ring too like I discussed then she was also in a Disney movie so maybe that's where you know her and Merriman kind of got together but she was in Sky High, which not the Sky High of Riheu Kitamura, who you know directed Godzilla Final Wars. Not a great movie, but the Disney movie Sky High. They came out around the same time. Very weird, but very different movies. Either way, I'm rambling here. I don't think Winstead is very good in this one. She's fine. She's decent. I mean, I just don't think there's a whole lot to her. And I don't think there's a whole lot to any of the characters in this. But I... It wouldn't be too long until she was in Death Proof, which I think she did a much better job in Death Proof. So is that just Tarantino writing a better character, directing her better? Or, you know, was she just starting to come into her own? I don't know. I'm not sure. So this is where we get into that ending where that epilogue, they try something new. You know, some people had survived. I I would say more than usual survived at the end of this movie. So you have your epilogue where they all weirdly meet up on a subway train later and Mary Elizabeth Winstead's character gets another vision and that's how this movie ends is her panicking after having her vision so it's a cool idea but I just don't think it really worked at that point but um, I don't want to get into much of the cast survivors because or the deaths because like I said they're just very bland very convoluted, not a whole lot to them. At the end of the day, I think I'd come in around a six. It's not a terrible movie. I don't think, I think one of these is a terrible movie, like I do with most of these franchises we've done. 
the others are just, they're okay. And this one is just okay. Um, there's some good points to it. There's some good things here or there. But really, it's it's around a six for me, I think. I will give it the benefit of a doubt and put it to a six. But nothing to rush out and see. And if you've had your fill, like many of these series, if you've had your fill, there's usually not a reason to go back if you're just, you know, I've had enough of the same thing. You're going to get more of the same thing here. Okay, let's keep this trainer rolling and move on to the final destination. I hate when franchises do this because a lot of the times you know it's not going to be the final one. I mean, third was the most successful in the franchise up to this point. Don't call your movie the final destination. No, that's it's never going to be the last one. Halloween Ends is not going to be the last Halloween film. It's just, it's never going to happen, guys, so stop doing that, please. But after the success of three, Eric Bress got to work on a script for Final Destination 4 to be filmed in 3D. So you've got Bress coming back. You also get David Ellis coming back, uh, which we'll get into in a minute. So you've got the crew. It's funny. You've got one and three kind of have the same crew and two and four kind of have the same crew. His script impressed Warner Brothers and the new installment was greenlit. Wong was supposed to be back to direct, but ultimately couldn't because of his commitments to Dragon Ball Evolution. This is the level of director we're working with. Let me stress that there was no right choice for Wong here. He was damned if he did, damned if he didn't. I cannot imagine, as a director, having the choice, looking back, you know, what the movies were, Having the choice between Dragon Ball Evolution and Final Destination 4, both could kill your career, and I can't even imagine being put in that situation. Now, at the time, you don't know what either one's going to be, but that's some gnarly stuff, man. That's, <laughs> that's... David R. Ellis was asked to return from 2, and he accepted because of the, you know, he wanted the chance to direct in 3D. Uh, and again, it's Cool, no matter how the movie turned out, it's cool that the same two directors directed these first four films. You don't often see that in a franchise, the same people coming back to direct and write and that kind of stuff. And even though, you know, their follow-ups, neither one of their follow-ups were as good as the originals, it's still cool. The racetrack scene at the beginning was filmed at Mobile International Speedway in Irvington, Alabama. And the rest of the film was filmed in New Orleans, so they wanted to change it up. I think it was Ellis's doing when he said, you know, I want to film someplace different and bring in business to New Orleans. And it was approved, so it was supposed to be filmed in Vancouver, but he convinced them to go to New Orleans instead. It was released on August 28th of 2009, both in 2D and 3D, after being delayed for two weeks. So it was supposed to come out... I believe the 14th, but it was delayed two weeks. And there we are again. The first films, first three films, all came out in quarter one of the year. You've got this one coming out in August, and the sequel would follow suit. It made 66 million domestically and 119 million internationally. With those numbers, it actually set a couple of box office records for the series. It had the highest worldwide gross of $186 million, 
and it was the only film in the series to hold the number one spot at the box office, which it actually did for two weeks in a row. Now, yes, it is coming out kind of at the doldrums of um, the end of August into that Labor Day weekend, which is never huge for movies. But uh, that's what we have. So I mentioned that with the release date. The other big difference in this one, yes, it did make the most money, but it also had a $40 million budget. So it had $15 million more than it was made for. And that accounted for roughly, what, 70, a little less than 70000 maybe 68, 000, or 68 million of extra revenue. I don't know if any of this had to do with inflation at all. I know we had a financial crisis going on in the United States in 2007, 8, even probably lingering into 2009 a little bit. So I don't know if that had anything to do with it. But either way, you know, it can be seen as a success. So let me go ahead and set this one up and we'll talk about it. So this one released in 2009. So you've got a cadence going on. 2000, 2003, 2006, 2009. It's surprising there's that much time in between each one, which is cool and probably is necessary because of the big spectacle pieces. Um, but they give them a little time to breathe. That's always, you know, needed in these types of things. Not great when you're just watching them back to back, though. <laughs> the tagline's very lazy. Rest in pieces. But it fits in with the poster, which is, I think, the one they used for the DVD collection. And it's girl's face with some kind of skeletal features showing and some shattered glass on the cover. So, uh, But the synopsis reads, After a young man's premonition of a deadly race car crash helps save the lives of his peers, death sets out to collect those who evaded their end. It's basically, insert accident here, insert, you know, <laughs> it's the same synopsis over and over. That's because these are these same movies over and over. So this gives, and, you know, the opening accident for this is at a race car track. First and foremost, the CGI is so bad in this movie. It's like something that would be in a sci-fi made-for-TV movie. It is garbage. It is awful. And it brings down this film to a level of trash that nothing else is in this series. It's a really bad movie, let me tell you. It's just, I don't think, I hate to blame, like, Ellis for this, or Hess, who was brought back in, because I think a lot of this, I think a lot of this is bad for the CGI. I don't want to blame them for that necessarily, and there's, you know, 3D stuff in this, which is bad too. But they're not excused, because their characters are pretty bad, and a lot of these characters are just grating, and not... Not great characters either. I mean, we left the great characters at two, and there are some that are good in one. But if you're looking for great character work, maybe you get a little bit in five, but it's still not up to the rest of the series. I do want to note that, so, you know, they escape just like normal in this one. They get outside of the stadium, and they're all standing around talking, the people that escaped, and, you know, some people are picking fights, and other people were arguing or whatever, but a woman still gets killed. Something flies out of the stadium, like they're outside of this big racetrack and standing outside. Something flies out over top of the stadium and nails her right in the head. I think that's cool and unexpected. 
that's the first time we see someone die immediately, or, you know, they maybe are still considered to die in the accident. So that was a really cool twist. You know, then there's some kind of memorial, and uh, there, let me reiterate that there are some really bad characters. In the first post-accident death we see, with this real racist dude who's going to burn a cross on the yard of this black cop or security guard who he feels like was responsible for killing his girlfriend. And yes, this is the Deep South, so we're going to use stereotypes and tropes of Deep South people. That's the kind of writing we get in this. But he's going to burn a cross on the yard of this poor black security guard who's done nothing. And I mean, this guy's written to be an absolute piece of garbage. But his death, there's a song going on during it that is just juxtaposed against what's actually going on in the movie. It's all bad. The death is bad. The song being put along to the death is bad. I mean, yeah, clearly the guy deserves it. I mean, we all know the guy deserves it, sure. But it's just a bad start to this movie. And the CGI, we're back to having some brutal deaths in that accident, but the CGI makes it impossible to like any of it. I mean, it is awful. Yeah, and and getting back to the characters, character choices don't make any sense. They're written poorly. They continue over and over to just deny the death thing, even after everything's happening in front of them. The writing is laughable. And there are some weird one-liner type deaths. What do I mean by one-liner type deaths? Well, let me give you an example. There's a mom of two kids, and they're at the racetrack, and uh, for some reason she puts two tampons, she tears up tampons and puts them in her kids' ears to, like, protect them from the sound, I guess. I don't know. Um, But what I mean by one-liner type deaths, so this mom is going into the spa and getting her hair cut, And there are so many things that happen leading up to it. I mean, it goes on forever. It's like teasing you. There's so much death foreplay with this where it's just like, oh, this is happening. Oh, this chair keeps acting up. Oh, her kids came in and spilled a slushy. And there's all this, all these red herrings all over the place. And then you get, you know, her telling her kids, I'm keeping my eye on you. And then a rock comes through let me back this up, and I need to set up this death, and this is a spoiler for sure for a death, but these kids are throwing, this is such an elaborate scene, it's like 10 minutes long to get to this death, but these kids are throwing rocks at this sign, and this guy's mowing the grass, and that's the setup for this, that's how this begins, their mom's going to the salon to get her hair cut, and she sends them down to the arcade or whatever, um, and then all this other stuff happens, she's getting her hair cut, and this chair keeps like falling down and there's the ceiling fan is weird it's like loose or whatever you've got all this stuff going on and then she tells the kids I'll keep my eye on I've got my eye on you or whatever and then the rock that the kids were throwing gets flung up in the lawnmower comes through and hits the mom in the eye and knocks her eye out and kills her that's a punchline you know that's a one-liner type death like saying I've got my eye on you and then dying in that way that's not the first or last time this would happen They try to evolve the ending from 3 and escalate things a bit, but it doesn't really work. And what I mean by that is they try to set up this this extra death thing at the ending as well. 
where you know there's going to be another accident occur and this kid actually saves people from another accident the guy who saved them from the racetrack so that's the whole big drama of the last part of this I just don't think it works one of the characters is so annoying in this segment too but whatever there's also a character who tries to commit suicide and it doesn't work and doesn't happen and all this stuff and I, that's how they think oh we beaten death you know there's always that theory of like oh if we do this we can beat death and they do it and it's like did we win uh, but they never do spoiler alert but he's like oh i'm trying to kill myself and all this stuff and it's not working and uh, for some reason they think that means that they've beaten death uh, anyway that's four i don't want to keep talking about four Final Destination for, uh, sorry, the Final Destination is, for me, it's like, I don't know, a 3.5 out of 10, I'm going to say. I'm going to go ahead and give it. It is the worst one in this franchise. There's some stuff to watch. I mean, there's some decent stuff about it, but most of it's just garbage. And is the one in the series I think you can absolutely skip without worrying about anything. Uh, if you've seen it once, that's plenty. I'm going to move on from 4, and let's go ahead and wrap this up with Final Destination 5. So as its title would leave you to believe, the Final Destination was supposed to be the last in the series. But as we know, when a film is that successful and breaks franchise records, it's going to lead to a sequel. And it did. Final Destination 5 was officially announced at a convention in March of 2010. Eric Heiserer was brought on to write, and this one would once again be shot in 3D, as was almost every movie around that time. The release date was set for August 26, 2011, but just like the last movie, that would change. This time, it was actually moved up two weeks to August 12th, 2011. So it's still in that August release period that the last one was. Stephen Quayle was brought on to direct this time around. So this is the first time we've kind of got someone not connected to it. We've got a director for hire almost coming in to do Final Destination 5. I could see where you wouldn't bring Ellis back based on maybe reviews and stuff. I don't know. Uh, by the way... Let me actually look at that now since I've skipped it for the last couple. Final Destination 3 was like at 44% on Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, the Final Destination was down to 28%, which I'm surprised it wasn't lower. And then Final Destination 5 is the highest rated one in the series with 62% on Rotten Tomatoes. But it shares that B-plus cinema score with Final Destination 2 and 3. And then the Final Destination holds the worst cinema score with a C, which, yeah, that's okay. That's not it's not terrible as a score. I would assume it to be worse. But interesting to me that Final Destination 5 is the one with the highest scoring on any of that stuff and the most reviews, too. All right, so let's jump back in. The title was also announced to be changed from 5-null destination, and that is 5-N-A-L. Terrible. Absolutely awful when you do that kind of stuff. But they would reverse course on this a few months later, as they should. Producer Craig Perry came up with the idea for this movie to be a prequel to the first film. 
I completely forgot that this was a prequel to the first movie, and you really wouldn't know either. I mean, maybe some things would seem out of place, but they don't go out of their way to say, you know, this is happened at this date or anything like that. So this is the first one where they can't rely on looking up what happened in that plane crash to see, you know, what's going to happen in this one. Tony Todd would return for his first physical appearance since 2. He had to turn down a role in 4 due to his commitment to Transformers Revenge of the Fallen, which, uh, listen, not a great movie, but still better than Final Destination, the Final Destination. Filming returned to Vancouver, and the opening sequence took place at the Lionsgate Bridge in Vancouver. This opening is a large suspension bridge, and it has to deal with it falling apart, so that's where it took place. I don't know how they got Vancouver to agree to all this. I guess us Americans wouldn't be able to tell what some of these places are. But, I mean, you get them to agree to this shooting this sequence on a roller coaster that's at one of your theme parks. You get them to shoot uh, at this bridge. I'm just saying that can't be great for tourism. Posters for the film were put on buses and trains in the UK, but the Advertising Standards Board there ruled that the posters were likely to cause fear and undue distress to children. They were ordered to remove them and not use that design again after the agency received 13 complaints from parents. They kind of went back and argued, hey, these posters are like black and gray, they're not going to catch the attention of children. To which the Advertising Standards Board said, well, yeah, we've got 13 complaints about this, and a few of those were one to three-year-olds. So they weren't having it. They made them change their posters for any kind of advertising. When it released on August 12th, it grossed a total of $42 million domestically and $115 million internationally for a total of $157 million worldwide. So still pretty respectable, but it was down from the previous film, and they had about the same budget. So now you're in the $30 million diminishing returns realm, and that was enough for the Final Destination series, I guess. So for Final Destination 5, it came out in 2011, so it broke the streak of the three years apart for each entry. Um, but it was directed by Stephen Quayle, or Quale, or whatever, known most for his masterpieces Into the Storm and Aliens of the Deep. Um, that is sarcasm. I've never heard of either of those two in my life. But that's the kind of director we're dealing with here. The synopsis reads, In this fifth installment, death is just as omnipresent as ever, and is unleashed after one man's premonition saves a group of co-workers from a terrifying suspension bridge collapse. But this group of unsuspecting souls was never supposed to survive, and in a terrifying race against time, the ill-fated group frantically tries to discover a way to escape death's sinister agenda. I would say this is a pretty safe sequel. You know, the cast is overall solid. The deaths are okay. They do kind of circle back to the opening accident being pretty brutal and pretty realistic stuff, not like we the CGI we saw in 4. So that's pretty cool. You do get another twist on this opening accident with someone surviving the initial premonition. So the guys, I don't know if it's fiancé or whatever, 
the character of Molly in this one, she is, she survives. So she maybe isn't in line for death. Or so we think anyway. We don't know. That's just the end of his premonition. She was living at the end of his premonition, which has never happened before. To set this up, they're all kind of on going to like an office retreat. So they're at this company and they're going to this retreat. They're on a bus. And there's an interesting cast of characters here. You know, you've got David Kochner and PJ Byrne, who I think you'll recognize from some other stuff. I think a lot of this cast and crew you would recognize, but I don't necessarily know what they're from. Like, I know they've been in other things. Like, you've got Emma Bell, who starred in Frozen. You've got uh, Nicholas D'Augusto, who was in uh, Fired Up, that cheerleader comedy movie. So you've got a bunch of people who are kind of, you know their faces and you know you've seen them somewhere, but you don't necessarily know where you've seen them from. Uh, Again, they're solid. There's no real standout. I mean, Kochner plays a complete jerk in this one. He's not not a very likable boss character. It's nothing like their standout. They're not even a standout as like one or two. The interesting part between them is the dynamics and the guy's fiance who made it out of this alive kind of broke it off with him at the beginning of the movie. And we find out that was for certain reasons. And then you have his best friend played by Miles Fisher and his girlfriend was on this retreat as well. And, or maybe they're, they were, I can't remember. I just cannot remember for the life of me how these people were connected, but girlfriend, fiance, whatever. She's a gymnast. Uh, she's in college and she, um, meets with an untimely death. She's the first one to go. And that kind of drives this character down a dark path and leading him to think, well, if other ones they've mentioned suicide or, you know, saving someone else or doing that. Well, this one, they mention killing someone else, taking another life. And I think Tony Todd's character brings that up, taking another life and substituting it for one. So he's going to try that with someone who he thinks was never meant to die with the Molly character in this. So he goes off the deep end a little bit, but the deaths in this are, they're brutal, but they're brutal in a way that isn't as campy or fun. They're kind of played more seriously, kind of more modern-y. I don't know how to describe it, but that's just how it feels. And yeah, it's, it's all right. I mean, the deaths are fine. But again, this is just, I know this is the highest rated one in the series, as far as what the critics think. Now, if you'll go over on Letterboxd, you'll see a different story. And I think the case is, it's just fine. It's fine. The characters are fine. Everything's solid. The acting's solid. The writing's solid. The deaths are solid. Everything is just solid. Now, the gymnast thing's pretty upsetting. I would say that's the... For me, I think they wanted it to be a different scene, but I think that is the marquee death scene in this one. Yeah, I'm just kind of rambling on about a movie that is just fine. There's nothing I really dislike that much about it. Nothing I really like about it. So I'm just going to wrap this one up. Um, The thing where it connects in is a prequel. At the end of this, you know, you have a couple of characters who survive. And again, I forgot that this was a prequel or connected in any way. So when I'm watching this and I'm like, oh, this guy wants to go... He has an opportunity to go to France to be a chef instead of working at this company. Um, And that's the whole thing that was holding up the relationship is he wants to go to France. I'm like, oh, interesting that they've connected this in. And then they get on the flight 
that goes down in Final Destination 1. So that's where it all kind of ties in, is this being a prequel to the first one, is that this one, you know, them escaping death, this seems like the progenitor. This one set up the original and why those people had to die on that one. And even if Molly was supposed to survive in this vision, it didn't save our main character's friend from dying, and she still dies in this plane crash because we know who the survivors were, and they weren't one. They weren't among them. So, anyway, that's a really interesting way. That's one of the things I like most about this one. Other than that, it's just a fine movie. Nothing really good. Nothing really bad. I think I'd come in at a six for this one too, just like with part three. I do have a soft spot for these movies and watching them. This one and three could just as easily be 5.5s, but I think I'm going to settle on sixes for both. So they're all there in that same range except for the Final Destination. So that is it as far as going through these movies. Now there are a couple of things before we go that I need to get into. First, I promised there would be some ratings, and there are. So I thought it would be fun to look at a few different categories that are consistent throughout the three films and rank these movies based on them. First up, we have the survivors, the you know the group of people that survived the accident and their cast and how I would rank them. For the survivors, I would say the Final Destination is the last. Those characters are just awful. They're terrible. I would put Final Destination 3 at 4th mostly just because the cast is just generic and vapid. Five, again, it's middle of the road. Final Destination 5 is three. There's nothing great about them. There's nothing bad about them. One uh, comes at number two. While there's nothing great about these survivors, there's at least a couple that I like, and they at least stand out a little bit more than they do in five. And no surprise, number two, I like the diversity of the cast as far as, like, it's not just all high school students and a teacher. You've got... People in all kinds of different professions, and you just get well-written characters as well, I think. Something with, like, three, you go back to pretty much all high school kids in this, and two, I think, stands far above the rest of the films. They're not all members of the same school. There's really nothing that connects a lot of them. They were just in cars trying to get on an interstate, so... I think two is my favorite list of survivors. Ranking the opening accidents, so the opening kind of death scenes that set up the whole thing in motion for each one of these, I would say there's a toss-up at five and four here. I'm still going to put number four as the last one. It is a toss-up. It's got better violence than three and more creativity, but the effects are so bad that it kind of ruins the whole thing. So I'm going to put that one last. Number four, I'm going to put number three. It's just weak with almost no violence or dread or anything. It's just a bad opening. Number five, again, middle of the road. Don't really care for it one way or the other. It's a good solid opening. It's way above three and four. But it's just nothing special. Um, number two and one, I had, this is another toss-up, and this one's tough to decide between. I think two is ultimately going to get the second spot, just because of the impact and the dread you feel in that first movie. 
two, I think, is the more violent and more has more of a lasting impact because you can probably think of everything that goes on. I, I don't know. Those two are so neck and neck. I'm just going to put that one at two and I'll put number one. I'll give it to one um, because that is the best part of one is that opening accident. I'll go ahead and give that number one, even if ah, two. I don't know. I'll just I'll just stick there. Rank the deaths overall, so everything outside of the opening accident. Four is last because of the terrible CGI and the ways that they do the deaths. I will put five. And I think... I think five will tie with three or be very close to three just because of pulling in that plane crash from the original. That's pretty cool. But number three, I think, has some pedestrian stuff but it's got the tanning bed things it's got a thing with a um like a spike or a stake kind of this big metal rod later on that i really like i'm gonna give the edge to three over five five is just very uninspired in their deaths number two i'm gonna put the first movie because it does have some cool ones including mostly this is here for the death of val luton the teacher but that's where I'll put that. And number two is one because of the creativity of a lot of the stuff, the brutalness of a lot of the stuff. Two really is the, you know, high point of this series. All right, to end this one off, and this segment's been missing for a while, I'm going to get back to Watch List Roulette. And I'm changing it up a little bit, as I think I had mentioned last time. You know, I didn't do this in October because... I was doing the Giallo thing, and then for the November episodes, I was joined by guests, and, you know, the December episodes, too. So, what I want to do with this one is kind of do, pick a specific year, and just go down through and watch movies from my watch list, just randomly picking numbers based on a year. And this year happens to be chosen by Greg Bazelli from Monsters and the Mosh Pit, and Greg chose 1984 for me to do. So it's weird enough that I get Soul Survivor as my first pick. Now how's that weird? Well, this movie shares a lot with the Final Destination movies. And it was just kind of coincidence that that happened to be the first one to come up. So let me set up Soul Survivor. It is available on Shudder and is directed by Tom Everhart. Came out in 1984, and the tagline reads, It wants her. It's waiting. It won't be long now. This movie was pitched to me kind of as Final Destination meets It Follows, and I think there was one other movie in there. It was cool that it was pitched to me, and at this point you're going to have to forgive me a little bit, because I think it's been since October since I've watched this, so I'm trying to re-piece together this review. It's just been delayed a while. But the synopsis reads, after inexplicably surviving a plane crash, TV station worker Denise tries to get on with her life. After she learns that she was actually supposed to die in the crash, the unseen specter of death starts sending its minions, people that have recently died, to collect her. Now does that sound a little familiar? Yeah, yeah. So it starts out with this plane crash scene. Basically we have a woman who is getting visions, and she's an old actress like she used to be in these movies and she's not you get the sense she's not very popular anymore I don't think you just get the sense I think they say it but she's having these visions and she gets visions of this plane crash and this is pretty pretty grotesque like the 
they don't really hold back on the deaths in this plane crash. There's one, you know, guy with his organs sticking out, but I'm not going to spoil this movie. This is all in the first, like, five, ten minutes of the film. But she sees this woman, and she sees that she survived the plane crash. But either way, she knows her from somewhere, and it turns out she's the one responsible for the commercial she's about to film, or she's the one in charge of it. She calls up some guys she knows in the middle of the night, I don't know if it's her manager or what, and tries to get uh, her number, who, you know, the character's name is Denise, and tries to get her number and warn her to not get on that plane. Well, the guy didn't give her the number, and she gets on the plane anyway. She ends up surviving. And she goes to the doctor, and she's talking to this guy, and he's talking to her about, and, you know, this guy would end up being her boyfriend later on. But they end up talking about survivor's guilt and how a lot of times people in these situations that survive will commit suicide or live recklessly or feel like they should have been there with the rest of them. And that's what, I think we've heard some of that in the Final Destination movies. I mean, that's a common thing to hear. So it's cool to have that in this one. Where it goes next is you've basically got, she starts getting in these near accidents and seeing people who have recently died. And that's when they get into this whole investigation thing and she tries to convince, you know, that doctor, her boyfriend, What's happening to her is real, and it's weird, and it's not just survivor's guilt. So you get basically the undead following these people around. And it's a pretty cool movie. There's some really cool death scenes, especially one near the end, that involves a character from early on in the film. I think it's a really cool scene. I think when these you know cadavers are following around, and these are these are vicious. At first they seem kind of like they're not really involved in it, or maybe they're just there as warnings or something. But they get into it, and they get into it and get involved in trying to actively kill this woman who was supposed to die in this plane crash. And so it's a little bit of a twist on this. It's And again, this came out a couple decades before Final Destination. But it's got that same basic premise, as you do have a little bit of It Follows because these things are following you around, but it's much more like a zombie film or a living dead film mixed with this Final Destination type of setup. So it's really cool in that sense. I mean, the characters and acting are fine in this one from what I remember. And I'm sorry, I definitely will be watching these closer to the review time. The way I did this one it just kind of got pushed off and pushed off. So yeah, I, I, really, I really thought this was a solid movie. I think it's a bit of a hidden gem. I mean, I it just came to Shudder. I don't know if that's how people were starting to you know, recognize it or maybe re-recognize it if it was something that you had watched in the 80s. But I had never heard of it before. I heard some buzz about it earlier this year, and then it was on Shudder, so it was an easy watch. I don't want to get into too much more to avoid spoilers here, but I think this is... A cool movie, I think it goes enough in the terms of, like, hardcore horror to appease horror fans. And I really do think it's cool how we have almost this predecessor to Final Destination that, again, was mentioned nowhere, of course. Um, and who knows what this little movie from the 80s, like, who knows if this thing, if Jeffrey Reddick would have seen this or anyone would have seen this. I don't know. But either way, it's a cool movie. 
it really ties in with the other movies I'm talk- I talked about tonight. And also, the other thing is, and it's going to be a little too late when this one releases a few days late after the holidays, but there's definitely a Christmas holiday vibe to this one. You know, you see some decorations and things like that, but Soul Survivor is absolutely worth your time. I would come in at around a 7.5, I think, on Soul Survivor. Now, how does that stack up with 1984? Well, I'm not going to tell you that. I'll obviously be doing some kind of 1984 episode in the future. There are a couple of good movies in 1984. I don't think there's an abundance of what I've seen so far. Now, I have a long way to go. This is just my first stop on the, you know, 1984 train. I will get there eventually. Right now, I haven't seen a whole lot. I don't think I've seen anything really bad. But I am at, if we want to do a counter here, I am at eight movies at 1984, eight horror movies. And I still have 11 left on my watch list. So it's going to take me a little time to get through those. I don't always see everything on the watch list. And some of these end up not being very much of horror at all. But that's where I'm seeing that right now. I am not going to do... So I don't think I'm going to do every single one. I will give you updates as I watch through the 1984 stuff. Probably do a few episodes on this, maybe five or six, but I probably will watch some 1984 stuff outside of reviewing them for the podcast. Maybe I'll do a couple in a week if I've watched a few of them or a couple in an episode. This is mainly for me to be able to tear through some of these watch lists, and it's fun to do them by years. So 1984 is first up. If you want to suggest a year for the future, if I haven't already went through and cleared my watch list on it, please do so any way you would like to, whether through social media or uh, sending an email or whatever. You can do that however you normally get in touch with the podcast. But I think that's about it. So that's the first revamped kind of watch list roulette, and that is the end of these series reviews for now. I do want to get back into these. Let me know. I think talking with Nathan, I think we're going to do a lot of these together probably going forward. Let me know if there's a series that you want covered. And again, I'm not all gung-ho on going in on Halloween or Nightmare on Elm Street or anything like that just yet. I'm trying to get some of these smaller ones. Ones we've talked about doing are, you know, the It's Alive trilogy, maybe the Omen films, things like that. If you've got any that you're particularly interested in, you know, if you really want us to do The Howling, if you really want us to do the Amityville movies, <laughs> let me know for some for whatever reason. But uh, those longer series, we might need to break up into a couple episodes. But that's the kind of stuff we want to do going forward, doing maybe a couple of these every year at least. This was just kind of a big batch of them. What's next for the podcast? Well, the very next episode is going to be the best of 2022 episode that I'll be doing. Um, I will be putting that on just like last year, and it's going to be a lot of fun to put that together. I also have in the works that'll probably already be out by the time you hear this, because I am recording this pretty early, another Screaming Ages Plays episode where I'm going to go into the video game Dying Light 2 from 2022. And give, you know, a short little, if you're not familiar with those, a short 10 to 12 minute review on that game and my thoughts and everything of it. 
I'm hoping to put a top 10 games of 2022 show together. That'll be just a very short bonus Screaming Ages plays type thing. Um, and hopefully do maybe one or two more of episodes on like short little review episodes on some games. Um, I'm mainly trying to stick to horror ones on the ones I do episodes for, but there are definitely more I play. The thing I'm starting to struggle with now is, you know, don't have a lot of time to play. So I'm trying to sneak in at least 10 games for this year to be able to put it a top 10 together, you know, uh, top 10 new ones at least. So that's in the works. I'm going to keep where I will go after the top 20 or top of 2022 show. I'm going to keep that close to the vest for now, but I will certainly be promoting what's next on that episode. So as always, in closing, you can follow the podcast over on Twitter at Screaming Ages. You can join the public Facebook group over at Screaming Through the Ages, a horror movie history podcast over there. And you could send an email to the episode at ScreamingThroughTheAges at Yahoo.com. You can send in a voicemail to 740-297-6556. You can also find the podcast wherever you get your podcast. It's pretty much on every podcatcher out there. And you can also find it at ScreamingThroughTheAges.com, the website. Other than that, I mean, if you're enjoying the show, tell your friends that love horror, you know, tell them about the show. Uh, you can leave a review wherever you get your podcast, and that would probably help the show out. I just want to thank everyone for listening. You know, we're starting a new year here, and it's going to be another big one for Screaming Through the Ages. i got a lot of stuff planned. I've got some cool new directions to take the show in. So let me know, as always, what's working, what's not working for you. Until next time, keep your eyes on your favorite podcast feed for your next bi-weekly horror movie history lesson.